0: Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and Film Intuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. The last few episodes of the year are a little different. Last week... You will have noticed that our final traditional episode was number 52 of season two or the 2021 season. Julia Ricci and myself covering Roger Moore's tenure as James Bond. It is an episode I loved recording. i loved learning more about Roger Moore. I read a bunch of books. So if you have yet to listen to it, I think you will greatly enjoy Julia and I geeking out on 007. We had so much fun making it. And from what I've understood so far, you guys are eating it up and I really appreciate it. That was the last traditional episode of one guest, one topic, the standard modus operandi that you've come to know and love on Watch With Jen. But the last couple episodes of this year are dedicated to physical media It is something I am very passionate about. I work with DVD Netflix frequently, and I am a big lover of physical media. I grew up in the era of VHS and collecting videotapes, recording things off TV to be really obscure and nerdy. And then when DVDs entered the picture, trying to get all those, the film commentary tracks were like film school in a box to use the Robert Rodriguez slang for DVDs and Blu-rays are wonderful. Now we're in 4K. They're streaming. I think some people have gotten rid of their players and they really shouldn't. Criterion Channel is that rare sort of port in the storm that still does offer DVD commentary tracks, but they're really not available in many other places along with these bonus features, interviews, things that we remember watching and collecting when we were, you know, movie lovers in the 90s and the early aughts. I am still a huge devotee of physical media. I have way too much in my house. I downsized and then I regretted it. I still have regretted what I downsized. So I'm always adding to my collection and, you know, when I upgrade and I notice I have things in different formats, I'm always mailing off movies to my friends. Like, oh, you can have my DVD because I got the Blu-ray or I'm donating them or selling them to used stores. Not so much anymore during the pandemic. These last few episodes are devoted to recent releases of physical media from various companies, Cohen Media Group, Paramount Pictures, Warner Brothers, and more. And I hope you will enjoy them. I, in preparation for this, have been having a lot of really engaging conversations with some of my good friends and some of your favorite Guests of the past, including Mr. Blake Howard, Kate Gabrielle, Nikki Dolson, Walter Cha, William Boyle, Rob Belushi, along with his mother. Yes, you heard that right. You're going to love it. We covered a bunch of these movies, and you are going to hear our conversations that we've been recording as far back as November. And Also, a request that I've gotten frequently from listeners is especially the ones who've been listening all along and like all five of you. No, I'm just kidding. But the ones who listened from the beginning and really enjoyed those nerdy little solo episodes I put out, recommending kind of like obscure movies or favorites that you know if you want to really impress your friends you sort of pull these titles out of thin air and that's how this show began and then I added in the friends episodes and then those took over and I've had some people email me and message me and ask, you know, when are you going to recommend more titles or I want to hear you on movies? Or if I have a really chatty guest and I have amazing guests, uh, they'll say as much as I love your guests, you know, we barely heard your voice this time, or um, I will get that kind of feedback. And So, what I did for you is a handful of these titles I could not rope other people in to talk about, or some I just thought might go a little more swimmingly if I covered them because I had so much to say and I didn't want to like dominate my guest. So, you are going to hear me go into great detail of my own, telling stories from my experiences with the film, things that I read or saw or heard over the years uh, about several of these, some with friends, and then those few that I went into detail about on my own. So I hope you're going to enjoy this last trio of episodes. We are kicking things off with myself going into talk about a movie that I really enjoy and I think it's worth a second look then we're going to be following my own foray into this title which goes on for a good 20 to 25 minutes so I hope you'll stay with me but I did have a lot of cool um, stories and interviews that I recalled that I wanted to share with you then you'll hear me talk with My good friend, Kate Gabrielle. And following up our conversation with Kate, we have Mr. Blake Howard. So I hope you'll sit back, relax, maybe grab a notebook in case we start throwing out titles that you want to see, and enjoy the first of three episodes devoted to physical media and made up of these laid back conversations. Well, first up, we have a film from one of my favorite filmmakers. It's a divisive one. Some people love it. Some people hate it. It's one of those movies that doesn't seem to really exist in the middle. You're either one or the other, which is sort of an observation that I made recently about Harold and Maude when I was talking to my friend William Boyle. And interestingly enough, the filmmaker, his movie we're going to be talking about right now, or I'm going to be talking about, is featured on the Harold and Maude Blu-ray. He is part of a film commentary track, along with the great screenwriter, Larry Karaszewski. And... If you're somebody who has purchased it or is up on their physical media or just a huge super fan, you've probably deduced who it is I'm talking about. And that is the great Cameron Crow. As somebody who, for years, has kind of been described by multiple people as sort of a Cameron Crow character, I Kind of define myself in those terms if I had to as being like part Ioni Sky and say anything and part Patrick Fugit in Almost Famous. Kind of if you merge those two together, you have me very much. And people who know me well are like, oh, yeah, I see that. I love Crow's work. The film that just was put out on. One of Paramount's new gorgeous Paramount Presents Blu-rays is Vanilla Sky. It is not one of Cameron's most beloved works. It isn't quite as loathed as Elizabethtown, which I actually think there's a lot of merit in that one as well. Um, or like We Bought a Zoo or Aloha. We Bought a Zoo was not my favorite Um Even Matt Damon, who's in the movie, there's a really funny story about him getting drunk at, I don't know if it was a wedding or a bar, and uh, he was out of order, and even when they were trying to like restrain him, I don't know if the cops were called or what the story was, he sort of charmingly said, you know, like, don't you know who I am? And that's usually when movie stars drop their, Like, I'm the fucking gladiator if you're Russell Crowe. And Matt Damon's like, I'm Matt Damon from We Bought a Zoo, which I just love. So even Damon knows it's not the greatest of films. But, you know, I think Vanilla Sky is in that sweet spot. Of, of course, it is not the masterpieces that... Uh, Jerry Maguire, almost famous and say anything are, but I think it's right in the tier below that. And it's still a dynamic, really fascinating movie. Beautiful to look at. It's haunting. It's one that was a huge box office hit. I don't know if people are aware, like it was $200 million at the box office, I think. So it actually did very well. I think a lot of that has to do with the star of the film, Tom Cruise, And the idea of Cameron Crowe reuniting with his star of Jerry Maguire, Tom Cruise, for this film in 2001. It's a remake. I think that was very surprising, especially coming off the heels of a film like Almost Famous, which is so personal, just like Say Anything was to Cameron Crowe. Vanilla Sky seemed like kind of an out-of-left-field sort of picture. There's a theory that I kind of have, which is that after somebody has like a huge hit, sometimes filmmakers get scared. Usually it's younger filmmakers. I feel like um, you see that with um, Quentin Tarantino after Pulp Fiction, kind of like second guessing himself, like, what the hell do I do now? And then he sort of did these crazy things like From Dusk Till Dawn and that, and then went on Broadway and was in wait, wait until dark. And then the next movie he wound up making is an adaptation of an Elmore Leonard novel, not his own original work. I feel like that isn't what we're getting here with um, Cameron Crowe. The film originated with Tom Cruise. He invited Cameron over to his house to watch the original work, which is made by Alejandro Aminabar. It's called Open Your Eyes or Abre Los Ojos. And it was from 1997. Crow had just wrapped Almost Famous. He was still really close to all the people he was working with and kind of wanted to continue the party or keep it going. And Cruz invited him over to watch this movie because he was really drawn in by it and thought maybe Cameron would be the ideal collaborator. And the rest is history. They agreed it's a strange one it's science fiction it's romance it's that great sort of um existential on we thing that Cameron does very well the middle age like who am I what am I doing and what is my life about sort of thing all those questions get asked by Cruz's character it is a film that is taking place over multiple timelines at once It opens. You're not sure what's going on. If you're in the middle of a dream, he's running down Times Square and it's empty. It's one of the most thrilling sequences you're going to see uh, in a film that Cameron Crowe made and just in a movie of this era. It's the kind of thing that we don't really get too much anymore. They actually did shut down Times Square to capture this. It's crazy to think now it would all be CGI. It is not. The movie finds Cruz playing David Ames, who's sort of like a Jerry Maguire character, kind of. He is the son of a publisher who is trying to, you know, like, keep his dad's company alive. He is a multimillionaire or billionaire, so he's doing very well. He's a bachelor. He has a fuck buddy in the form of Cameron Diaz or a woman who's friends with benefits who finds out later that perhaps he had called her thus uh, in a conversation with his best friend, Jason Lee, who we're not sure if he's a real friend, a frenemy. Um, Ames, played by Cruz, questions that later, just like he questions his relationship with Cameron Diaz's character, who you realize very early on thinks of their relationship as something much more than just friends with benefits. There's a line that Cameron Crowe has said that came from an interview with the real Penny Lane, the groupie, not groupie, the band-aid from Almost Famous that was beautifully played by Kate Hudson. When Crowe called up his old friend and had conversations with her, and I think other women who were sort of following the band or with the band uh, or the several bands that he covered in the 70s, There was kind of a recurring theme, which is when a man and a woman, especially if one is in a power position, go to bed together, somebody is lying to somebody. It's kind of transactional on one end, and maybe there's feelings involved, like, oh, this doesn't mean anything. But when the lights turn off, maybe somebody is lying. And that is an issue that comes up in Vanilla Sky. Julie played by Cameron Diaz, is in love with him. She has to invite herself over to his birthday party, which is sort of heartbreaking and tragic and also makes you question David. Like what kind of a friend is he to this woman that he's sort of using for sex? He thinks it's completely mutual but doesn't even invite her over to his birthday, which is filled. It's not like an intimate gathering of five people. It's a huge ass party at his apartment. And she does invite herself over. It's awkward. She's kind of following and staring at him. And that is where he picks up on his friend, Jason Lee's date, which is a pickup to Jason Lee's character. He meets a beautiful dancer played by Penelope Cruz, who incidentally played the same role in the Aminabar movie. She plays it again here in English. She meets the Jason Lee character at the library, comes to this party, and what a great friend, Jerry Maguire, a.k.a. in this movie, David Ames, but it is a very Jerry Maguire kind of move, or a first half Jerry Maguire, not the 2.0 version he becomes where Tom Cruise just sort of treats this girl like a gift that Jason Lee has brought him for his birthday and just picks up on his friend's date and clicks with uh, Penelope Cruz. While all of this is going on, and this leads to a shocking uh, turn of events that I don't want to spoil if you haven't seen the movie, While this whole thing is going on in this timeline, we're also seeing David in another timeline where he's wearing a mask, not a COVID mask, but like a literal mask, like a Phantom of the Opera mask, as he's telling his life story to Kurt Russell. It seems that he is incarcerated or something has happened. And he's trying to talk about all of the things that have happened to him, like Has he been framed? What has happened? We don't know. Um, And you're trying to piece this together. It's jumping around. The title Vanilla Sky comes from the great vanilla skies of Claude Monet's paintings. And the movie itself is essentially like a jukebox of all of Cameron Crowe's favorite songs. He's even described the movie as uh, continuing on from the almost famous, like this seemed, and he's talking about the Amanabar movie as the type of uh, song that our band, meaning his cast and crew and himself, would love to cover. And it is basically cover band of an earlier hit, uh, the Amanabar, uh, los Ojos. It features all of Crow's excellent taste. And anyone who is a Crow fan knows that this man knows how to put together a mixtape along with nancy wilson who was his wife at the time and his uh music collaborator Uh, the soundscape on this film is just incredible you have like songs used weirdly like a tapestry layered up upon each other along with lines from movies it's sort of bringing to life that idea of you know you are what you read But in Crow's case, you are what you consume or the art that you love. And it really comes through in Vanilla Sky. It's almost like you're being bombarded with this fabulous taste. And I remember that was a complaint that a friend of mine had, like, you know, Crow is just uh, shoving his taste down your throat. And, you know, I'm tired of it, or whatever the case may be, like, they were not a fan. And I remember sort of laughing and going, well, yeah, but if you have the same taste as Cameron Crow, like, this is the ultimate. Uh, It's filled with, you know, French New Wave, you have Audrey Hepburn, you have, like, Gregory Peck and To Kill a Mockingbird, you have you know, references to great jazz and jazz pops up. You have Radiohead, uh, you have Paul McCartney. I mean, it is filled. It's like a Brian Wilson uh, symphony where he's sort of taking old elements of Bach and putting it and infusing it into surf songs as he did in the Beach Boys. That is what Vanilla Sky is to me is it a perfect movie? Hell no. It is a little too unwieldy. I mean, somewhat by design, I think, but I do feel like the second half of the film gets away. It winks at you. Um, It's interesting in the commentary track, Uh, And there's a commentary track, of course, filled in with this. There's a new filmmaker focus. There are all kinds of extra features on this Blu-ray that you will need to check out, especially if you're a fan. But Cameron Crowe has talked about the ending of the movie as dividing people, and that there are like five different uh, interpretations of the ending, which, you know, I'm going to go ahead and read here. So if you have not seen Vanilla Sky... You might want to fast forward for a little bit or jump to the next section. Just keep fast forwarding. But I feel like this is an interesting discussion to have here. So I'm going to share it. Okay, the five interpretations of the ending. According to Crow on his commentary track, and you can also read these on Wikipedia. Uh, Number one, tech support is telling the truth. 150 years have passed since Ames killed himself and the subsequent events form a lucid dream. This is something that I think is worth discussing. Why we believe certain people in films. Um, I know Christopher Nolan has brought that up quite a bit when talking about Memento. Everybody's like, oh, my God, the ending. And it is kind of crazy. Like you do take it on face value when you first see it or you might. And then you start thinking, wait a minute, the Joe Cantiliano character is like the one you can't trust through the movie. Why should we believe him? Uh, but is it true? Which elements are true? And you might have to come to that um, for yourself. I tend to believe that this might be uh, true in this case, the way it is presented. But I could see some of these other ones. Especially the fact that, I mean, this is a dream to some extent. So what kind of dream and who is doing the dreaming? Who is the dreamer and who is dreaming um, of what? Essentially, it's basically like uh, Twin Peaks, the return sort of asking you that question of, of what you can believe. Back to the interpretations, number two. Uh, the idea that the entire film is a dream evidenced by a sticker on Ames's car that reads two thirty oh one, February thirty does not occur in the Gregorian calendar. Number three, the events following the crash form a dream that occurs while Ames is in a coma. I mean, I think you could link some of those together. Number four, the entire film is the plot of the book that Brian is writing. Again, who is the dreamer? Number five, the entire film after the crash is a hallucination caused by the drugs that were administered during Ames's reconstructive surgery. Crow notes that the presence of Vanilla Sky, the morning reunion after the club scene between David and the Penelope Cruz character, marks the first lucid dream scene and that everything that follows is indeed a dream. I think you need to respect the filmmaker. But the thing about movies is, even if that's the story they're telling, that might be not the story you're getting. And I think Vanilla Sky is a fascinating movie in those respects. It would be an interesting one to watch and then talk about with somebody because you're not going to see the same picture, uh, even if you both agree on the same ideas with the end. I think uh, this is a really cool one to talk about. It has all those wonderful questions that Crow makes you think about uh, in Jerry Maguire and in Say Anything, which is people at a younger age, kind of like coming of middle age is sort of the Jerry Maguire and the Vanilla Sky era. Uh, then he goes back to the younger years again in Elizabeth Town with the Orlando Bloom character, the what does it all mean? What direction is my life going and what should I do? And I think these are bold Things. For an American filmmaker, obviously this is coming from a foreign filmmaker's uh, work, but I think it's really a cool thing that American filmmakers uh, are interested in these ideas all too often. And hey, we all need escapist movies. We need great shootouts. We need, you know, Mission Impossible Fallout to use another uh, Tom Cruise movie. But I miss American movies asking these existential questions. And so I think you can fault Vanilla Sky for certain things, but not that. It is uncompromising American filmmaking. And I am thankful that it exists. I'm always thankful, even when something is very ambitious and I disagree with it or I don't like it, I will take mad, passionate, wild ambition over playing it safe or just going through the motions any day of the week. I would love to see Cameron Crowe release another film. I am the one roadies fan out there. Yes. I enjoyed the hell out of roadies. Maybe not like the first episode, like it needed some work, but it did find itself and it was a great, great series. And I, I'm still mad that it did not go into another season So if you want to see something that Crow did recently, do check out Roadies. It is not, um, you know, We Bought a Zoo, uh, which was another adaptation. And it is not Aloha. Now, I actually, there were elements of Aloha I liked and ones I did not. But again, uh, that one, okay, that's probably a rung below Vanilla Sky, but I find all of his work, Interesting. And I think interesting in a good way, and in some cases, in an epic way. And some of his films are among my very favorites. I also love the idea in his movies that people are both super cool with their taste, but also desperately uncool because of how nerdy they are with their taste. It's sort of a double edged sword. And I relate to that because I am a total arts and culture and music and book and film nerd. And, you know, this is sort of a great study of that, even if it's just presented as all of these elements that make up David. These movies he saw when he was little, these songs, uh, albums, the album cover, like a Bob Dylan cover, which comes to life later. It's fun. The little uh, freeze frames from Jules and Jim, like you're going to get all of that. When I was watching Vanilla Sky, I posted on Twitter that it was the first time I'd seen it in forever, and I had just revisited Almost Famous. That 4K came out over the summer, and then I did an episode with uh, my good friend Stephanie Crawford on soundtrack movies. And so watching these in quick succession, I said, man, I missed that era when it looked like Jason Lee was going to be our next big character actor movie star. And I was thinking about this whole phase of films that he was just amazing in. And he was always kind of the scene stealer, the supporting player. Uh, Hey, I'm incendiary too, man. It's one of my favorite lines from Almost Famous. I just love his character so much. How can you tell I'm just one of the out of focus guys is wonderful. I also adored him in Mumford. I'm again, probably like the one fan of that Lawrence Kasdan movie uh, that I think probably six people saw, but I love it. He was also great in Chasing Amy, even if that movie is not my favorite, but it does have just some terrific performances and great speeches, even if uh, some of them are very, you know, what the fuck. But Jason Lee uh, loved him. And then he kind of coasted into My Name is Earl and some bad choices, some family films. I don't know if it was just the shit he was getting offered at the time. Uh, I heard he's doing wonderfully now. I believe somebody said he was a photographer and that is so cool. He'd been a skateboarder before this. So constantly reinventing himself. A man, many talents who wears many hats. I love you, Jason Lee. It was wonderful to see him again. Tom Cruise is always so good. Um, I think he's somebody we don't appreciate because he is just One of our biggest capital M, capital S movie stars, kind of like Tom Hanks, I think um, after the years go by, people are going to appreciate just who these people are and what they could do. And that is Tom Cruise. Cameron Diaz is great. I loved her reunion film with Tom Cruise years later in Night and Day. It's a movie I love. Like, if you know me and we're friends, I probably made you watch it at this point. Uh, recently, I did a podcast uh, where I was a guest on. I believe it was called Exit Through the Twenty Tens, where you had to pick a film from the Twenty Tens and talk about it. And instead of picking like you know a masterpiece, a real heavy movie, because I've been doing so many heavy films for my uh, podcast, I was just like you know what I want to pick Night and Day, and that's exactly what I did. And I had a ball talking about Cruz and Diaz and. Yeah, so Vanilla Sky, I would recommend this uh, beautiful new Paramount Presents Blu-ray, but I am kind of like, well, you know, the technology is there, damn it. Why didn't they just put out the 4K? But hey, I am glad that there is a new one and that uh, for the 20th anniversary of Vanilla Sky, it is still something that we can all discuss and still something that plays like gangbusters. So Check it out if you're a fan of Crow or Vanilla Sky. Well, next up, I'm delighted to be joined by one of my besties, our talented logo designer and the artist behind her own terrific pop culture, classic movie and vintage theme shop, KateGabrielle.com. The wonderful Kate Gabrielle is here. So how are you doing today? Good. How are you? Doing well. Is there anything
1: new on the horizon, whether professionally, on your own, at the Patreons, or in your shop? Um, There's a big project I think I probably mentioned last time that I talked to you that was sort of uh, up in the air for a little while and now seems Mm -hmm. to be happening again. So hopefully by the next time I'm on the podcast, I can finally say what that was. Um, And for my own store, I'm working on launching my Christmas merchandise soon so that's exciting. so excited. Every (laughs) year at this time, I always
0: like go right to her shop online and buy a ton of Christmas cards because they're my favorite. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, so I can't wait. She has new designs this year. I've seen a few of them. I also know what she's talking about with her secret project, and it's amazing. So yes, keep your fingers
1: crossed, everyone, that next time she'll be able to announce. Yes, and that it actually goes through cuz it was yes, you know, touch and go for a little while. Yeah, sometimes you never know with companies, but yes. Yeah, we're all going to think good thoughts. Yeah. Thank
0: you. <laughs> well, we're here today to talk about one of my favorite horror movies and yours, and one that was just released on 4K from Paramount in time for holiday shopping. We're talking of course about director Wes Craven's Scream, the 1996 game changing genre work that works as both a comedic spoof of the films that came before it and horror tropes and also as a very scary movie in its own right which is a tough balance of tones to get right so do you remember when you first saw it
1: i actually saw it for the first time like as an adult like years after it came out, I was, um, only 10 when it was released and okay. my parents didn't let me watch scary movies. Sure. Um, <laughs> so I probably saw it like maybe in my late twenties and it instantly became a favorite. Um, like if you asked me, what's your favorite scary movie, it would be, there Scream. You, go.
0: <laughs> you know, I might have to say that. Yeah. Especially favorite modern one, like favorite classic scary movie, you know, I can be like, yeah, mm-hmm. maybe night of the hunter or whatever. But when you're talking about just like modern scary movie, definitely Scream. So I'm the same way. For me, I remember seeing it in the theater, but I actually had to wait a while because I just had um, one of my back surgeries at the time. And it was so funny because all of my friends were super excited and they had just seen it. So one of my best friends, I still remember like I'm groggy. I'm like barely with it. And I answer the phone in the hospital room. She's like, I just saw Scream. And she goes on and on and basically tells me the entire plot of the movie that she saw. I mean, I was so out of it. I forgot most of it. Except I vividly remember her saying like, and then there's this girl and she's going through and she gets stuck in the garage door. And I'm like listening. I'm like, uh-huh. Yeah, Cammie, that sounds great. And I'm like really out of it. And um, so I couldn't wait to see this movie. It was all anybody talked about for months. And then when I finally got to the theater to see it, it was really hilarious because, you know, we saw it in the theater and mostly in the suburbs, like people didn't do a lot of talking back to the screen. And so my brother who had already seen it a couple of times, I think at that point, and I are sitting there and it was a sparsely attended screening. And there was this man all alone, a few rows up from us. That was like losing his shit. The whole time. And that's actually what he kept saying. Like he was watching the movie and he's like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. And then, oh, shit. Like getting more and more scared through the whole movie. He kept doing this and it was becoming like a catchphrase. So when he would start with his, oh, everybody just immediately started laughing. So, oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of like being at a party at the end of the movie. By the time uh, we got to the party with the guy like, you know, look behind you. That's basically Uh what this guy was
1: doing. So yeah. That's so fun.
0: (laughs) Yes. That was my experience. And you just saw it on the big screen yourself, right?
1: Yeah. For the first time for the anniversary Fathom uh, events did a re-release. And um, so I finally got to see it on the big screen and it was fun. I uh, have a sweatshirt that says Woodsboro high school class of 96. And I felt like it was like kind of obscure unless you really know scream and I walked into the screening and in the in front of the concession stand there was a guy wearing like the full um you know ghost face outfit and <laughs> and just like um yelled at me hey I love your sweatshirt it's hilarious <laughs> and it was so fun because it was like immediately sort of feeling like this is going to be a fun screening among yeah you know fellow people who love the movie so and it was it was a very nice audience to watch it with and it was just so fun getting to see it on a big screen because i've only ever seen it you know at home yeah. on a tel- television so
0: i remember you telling me a really funny story i think it was you had an airbnb it was during the pandemic mm-hmm. was it around your birthday and you were like ready to show this movie to your family or whatever, and you started it and you're like, we're in a desert, deserted beach area. Like this might not be a good idea. It's nighttime. <laughs> like, wasn't that what you were talking about? Well,
1: Yeah, it was, um, we had the windows open and it was, uh, down the shore and, um, the neighbors also had their windows open and we, had to really turn the volume up high for some reason like it wasn't playing the audio very well uh. and as soon as it the screams started in <laughs> scream um I thought, you know, this might not be the best idea because it sounds like someone's actually getting murdered in here and we have the windows open. Yeah. And, you know, and it was an Airbnb. So I thought, like, you know, the neighbors don't know who we are and yeah. you know, um, might oh be my like, God, what, is so yes. <laughs> <So> <laughs> what is happening? Yes. What is with we that? Family
0: from New Jersey. Like, what are they doing? Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. is so funny.
1: Oh my God. Yeah. So we just postponed that and put on a different movie.
0: <laughs> yeah. No. And what's great is that kind of matches from what I've heard about it with Kevin Williamson, the screenwriter. Like, I guess he based the story or I shouldn't say based kind of was inspired by a real life killing um, or serial killing, I should say. Mm -hmm. And he was watching this thing on TV about it. And he was like, my windows were open or I was starting to think how easy it would be if somebody got in my house and was like getting progressively creeped out more and more so kind
1: of yeah yep it is yeah um your house when you watch movies like this suddenly becomes so much scarier Um, I I have a habit of watching these movies like in the middle of the night when my family is asleep and all you're brave (laughs) well I mean even I've seen screams so more times than I can count now and it doesn't scare me scare me anymore because I know what's happening And I know, you know, when people are going to get killed and things like that, but even knowing all of that and being so familiar with the movie, when I leave my room to like go to the bathroom or something, I just have that feeling where it's like, you have to kind of like scurry, (laughs) you know, like something's behind, something's behind you and you have to just like hurry up to get to the bathroom and then hurry back to your room. And (laughs) it just, you know, everything just feels a little bit more ominous than it
0: did before you watched it. Mm -hmm. No, I'm the exact same way. I think the most scared I ever got watching something like in my house was I watched blue velvet and I was alone and it was late at night and I had to use the restroom and I like, you know, I was only maybe eight feet away from it, but I had to like go Mm -hmm. down the hall. I remember just getting like, super scared on the way. Cause I thought, you know, just even taking the short walk in a David Lynch frame of mind is terrifying. Yes. <laughs> also when you're sitting in your house, I don't know. I don't like, it's kind of that thing where you don't want to have like behind you basically the look behind you. So yeah. I'm always looking over my shoulder or, you know, that kind of thing. I have some great stories about that. My brother, who's a very tough guy, um, gets really freaked out very easily in um, scary movies and he doesn't like to admit it Um, but when we saw Hannibal at the big screen and then went home uh, he had his own place and he like dropped me off he was so freaked out he's like I'm putting up curtains because he had just gotten the place. And he's like, I got my curtains. I'm going to put them up. And you're going to talk to me while I do it. And so like, the whole time. And then we wound up. I think I picked up a pizza and came over there. Because he was that freaked out. And then we watched uh, The Shining in our house before he had moved out. Like we had a little dog. And he lived in the basement. That's where his room was. And he, he had to go downstairs to grab something. And he actually brought the little dog with him. I mean, she oh would gosh. have licked
1: you to death, basically. But I just thought that was so funny. So I've done that with my cat Arietti. There have been yes. times where I have to I have to leave my room to go to the bathroom, and I'm like, you know what? You're coming with me to the bathroom. Yep. And I pick her up, <laughs> put her on the counter. Yeah, you're gonna <laughs> like, be going to be my guard cat. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah I, it's so funny because it's it makes things that are familiar scary. It does, you know, like yeah, um, it it just spooks you. It really does. Yeah. Did
0: you know the first time you saw it that Drew Barrymore died um, early in?
1: I don't think so. The first I don't think yeah, I knew the first I had time no, I saw it. No, no idea.
0: Obviously, I'm sure my friend told me that, but I was thankfully in such a stupor that I didn't remember yeah. it. But.
1: That was the biggest shock,
0: kind of like a Janet Lee and
1: Psycho shock. Yeah, I was going to say, everything that I ever, like, read or watch about Scream will say, like, this is so groundbreaking that Drew Barrymore dies at the (laughs) beginning. And I'm like, um, Psycho. Yeah, that that was the groundbreaking one. But, I mean, it is, I guess, like, in the slasher genre, um, it's groundbreaking for that, I guess, like, you know, the modern time period that, like, usually the protagonist is introduced at the beginning and is like the final girl that survives to the end good point yeah Yeah.
0: no you're right it was um really shocking for the time and I know Wes Craven of course who's like one of the forefathers of the modern version of the horror movie was at this period I guess he said he was thinking he was probably done making horror movies because he said you know like they had devolved into these slashers and he said it was going in really misogynistic and super violent towards women, dark places. And he didn't want to do that. And so I think he'd been offered it. It was called scary movie, mm-hmm. um, but he was working on the haunting and then that fell through. And then he heard drew Barrymore read it and wanted in. And he said, you know, something I had respect for drew. And I thought if she read it, this must be different than my, you know, reservations. And sure enough, he read it and he's like, no. And so she was supposed to be Sydney Prescott. And, um, you know, there was some scheduling conflicts. And so she switched it out. But I think it actually works better with her as Casey Becker.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's perfect and I also really I think Nev Campbell is absolutely perfect as Sydney though. So I good. I had seen you know when you watch things on Amazon sometimes uh those little like trivia things will pop up which I don't yes. actually agree with. I think it's stupid and it should it distracts you from the movie if you look at it. But yeah. I looked at it. Yeah. <laughs> and and it had like a list of people who had auditioned for that role, and I saw Melissa Joan Hart had auditioned for it, and I just suddenly was like picturing this alternate universe where Clarissa is Sydney. Yeah, <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. I feel like it could have worked. I I really like Neve Campbell, and I am happy with how that turned out, and I think she's the best choice. But like being a huge fan of course, like all, I was just sort of thinking about that now and. I think that would have been really interesting. And I think she would have been really good at it.
0: Yeah, that is a role that you could totally see that. I know um, at the time, I think Craven had seen um, Party of Five and just Mm -hmm. thought she had this ability to play both innocent and also had a toughness to her. Yeah. And I agree. I think she's really good. My favorite story with the casting is, I mean, there were so many people up for um, Billy Loomis too, Mm -hmm. that didn't wind up getting it including David Arquette was supposed to be a yeah just yeah I think he asked to audition for Dewey and yeah even though Dewey was supposed to be like this hunk on the paper I mean David is cute you know what I mean but you know he was supposed to be kind of a tougher guy and uh yeah so I love what he brought to Dewey I thought it was really funny when I read that Matthew Lillard was like bringing his girlfriend to some reading for a totally different project at some casting office. And they just happened to, I don't know if they observed him talking or just standing there. And some person came over to him, a casting agent, was just like, you know, we have this other project, we want you to read for it, just, you should do it. And so it was like, if he hadn't been there that day, or they hadn't crossed paths,
1: like just crazy. I didn't know that. He's, yeah. I think he's probably maybe MVP. the best character yeah. in the movie. <laughs> I love him so much. I know. And it's,
0: I always liked his performance, and I liked the character. But watching it this time uh, on the new version, and I should say for people listening that do have 4K capabilities, it looks amazing. But watching it this time, I was like, you know, I think Matthew Lillard might have stolen this movie away from everyone else. Just his weird yeah. affectations, how he says some of those lines like, live her alone. And, um <laughs> Oh my God. And you know, mom and dad are going to be so mad at me. me. Oh my God. So good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I love him. I I also, I rewatched scream two yesterday and I noticed, um, Randy said something like when they're going over who could possibly be the killer in scream two. And he says, um, that, Oh yeah. When he said Billy might be alive. Yes could totally be stew though like was stabbed yes like certain spots and it might not have killed him or something like that and like just in the back of my mind i'm thinking like maybe they bring him back for scream five (laughs) i would love that so much like they they already laid the groundwork that maybe he's actually somehow still alive you Know it's it's not Ooh, just like I'm
0: so glad you rewatched that because no. that just made me even more excited. Yes. Oh, that's
1: a good idea. Yeah. I also, like I generally when I see people rank the movies, people like never put scream two that high. And I think it's mm-hmm. really fun. I, I, I think really that like the it. yeah, the killer reveal is like a little bit of a letdown. Yeah. Um, like it just you're like, really? Them. <laughs> yeah but um <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then yeah. yeah yeah but um but generally the rest of the movie is really really good i love the opening and i think mm-hmm. like a lot of the um like a lot of the meta stuff is very great like i love the callback where in scream one uh Campbell is like well with my luck tori spelling will play me in the movie and then in yes. scream two tori spelling is playing her in the movie it's so perfect It really is. I know. And I know, like, Williamson,
0: when he wrote it, I guess he wrote it in like three days, which is bananas. Um, He actually wrote like little treatments or ideas for Scream 2, Scream 3. Mm -hmm. So I I do think it's really smart that they were kind of thinking ahead, like, hey, if this hits, because it really did usher in that whole late 90s period of teen scary movies again, because they'd kind of been on their way out. And I really enjoyed Scream 2. I watched it again a couple years ago and like the whole Sydney wanting to be a great actress thing seemed a little over the top. Mm. Um, But that opening thing with Jada Pinkett Smith was so terrifying. I remember seeing that in a theater and it suddenly made going to the movies really, really scary. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I actually, um, the theater that I work at, um, I used to volunteer there like five years ago and I saw Halloween for the first time there. Oh, cool! And, um, so I, when I was volunteering this one night, I went to see Halloween, and um, I think it was actually on Halloween too. And oh my God. Uh, so while I was watching it, this guy walked in dressed like Michael Myers, um, and just sort of walked around a little bit and then left and oh i God. i was unnerved for the yeah. whole screening because of this guy and i never brought it up or asked anything about it i thought that maybe they had planned it as like a stunt or something um so like that was like 5 years ago then i'm working at the theater now and at some point i brought it up and i said I remember when they did that stunt where they had somebody come in dressed like Michael Myers and it scared me to death. And they were like, no, we didn't plan that. This guy came to the theater to see the movie and he was like 15 minutes late. And we said, sorry, we're sold out. And he said, can I just go like, look (laughs) and they let him like go in. So this guy just walked in, looked at everyone watching the movie and left. (laughs) Oh my God. That's so perfect. And that would have terrified me.
0: Like, Oh
1: my goodness. Yes. And and it's funny because it's such a vivid like part of the memory of me seeing yeah. that movie for the first time is this guy just like and, and he was just sort of like observing and then left. <laughs> yeah. Know? Oh, my God. I
0: can only imagine. Wow. I think Scream 3 obviously kind of like jumped the shark, as we shall say, but Scream mm-hmm. 4 is really good. I think yeah. that one and the second one might be tied for me, or very close to a, a second. But mm-hmm. the first one still my favorite. Yeah, I love yep. too that um, the female power in this movie. Like I'm related to somebody who was actually named after Tatum. In oh my the gosh! Yeah, that's so cool. Yes, and so. Um, So that movie and her character, Rose McGowan's uh, very feisty heroine, uh, had an impact. All the women in this movie are great. And it kind of helped make women go to scary movies. I mean, usually we are kind of, we're there, we're naked and we're killed right away. But um, yeah, I think that's one thing that's really unique about Scream.
1: Sydney complains about that. She says that's why she doesn't watch scary movies. (laughs) exactly right yeah and and it's actually one of my favorite scenes when she like complains about that and she's like you know and and this idiot is always running up the stairs when she should be running out the front door and then literally right after that she like goes to open the door and the dead locks on so she runs up the stairs yes (laughs) oh my goodness so so perfect it really Um, is yeah I, i mean like i think there's probably people who don't like the um oh the how, meta yeah, yeah yeah like how meta it is or how you know tongue in cheek it is about previous movies and stuff like there's a lot of um you know references to other horror films and that and stuff and people might not like that but I get a kick out of it and it's also it's this groundbreaking this, for the time yeah, and, and this was actually probably the first scary movie that I watched and really liked. And so a lot of the references were actually lost on me the first time that I ever watched it. And then as I've been expanding my, um, like, library of which, yeah. you know, uh, horror movies I've seen, every time I watch Scream, it's like I'm getting more of the little references that I didn't get before. Like, I actually watched Nightmare on Elm Street for the first time this year. Oh, and cool. um, it had completely just passed by that the janitor was dressed like Freddy Krueger. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I hadn't seen that many. I remember seeing one of the nightmare on Elm Street as a kid, like mm-hmm. this guy uh, across the like the big brother of one of my friends in childhood, put it on just to scare us like before mm-hmm. bed, and it was in the background while we were doing something else. And so you couldn't help but see it. And so he messed with us. So I knew like Kruger and I knew a couple little things. I think I'd, maybe I'd seen Halloween, but maybe not, but Mm -hmm. same thing, like this kind of um, introduced sort of the genre tropes. It appealed to film geeks in a way that we didn't really have. Of course, Kevin Williamson would do that further on Dawson's Creek with the main character who was a movie geek kind of inspired by him and Yeah, I love that. I'm always learning more about horror this year. I watched a bunch more because of Scott Weinberg, an episode mm-hmm. I just did with him, Elizabeth Cantwell. I did one on Final Girls. Last year, I saw Black Christmas for the first time. Oh, I still um, haven't seen that yet. Okay, I love it. I'm, I'm talking about the old 70s version. I haven't seen the new yeah. remake but it's so good. And since it's um, girls alone in a house on the phone and the call might be coming from inside or, you know, you don't know. Um, So suddenly it was like, Ooh, I see what scream did there.
1: Very cool. Yeah. It's neat. How many callbacks there are, or even like, um, I, I loved when the first time that I ever watched Friday the 13th, I had already seen scream and so the whole time I was watching it, I, mother. yeah, I was like, it's Jason's mother. <laughs> <And my laughs> mother Mrs. It's not Voorhees. Jason. Yes. Yeah. So I was like expecting that. But then I was not expecting when I watched that for the first time when he like just sort of
0: emerges of the from the water. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. So, so scary. Yes. It's yeah. such an idyllic moment where she's in the boat and then, ah, yeah. Yeah. Very I mean, nice it was story. actually
1: almost like Scream gave me like a sense of... Um, like false, a false sense of security yes. when I watched that movie yeah. because because I was like, oh, it's not Jason. He's not in this movie. And then that, that really caught me off guard.
0: Yeah, so. and I like, um, I mean, Halloween, I think was the biggest influence. And I like how that mm-hmm. it, it goes back with some of the names, even Loomis, of course, with Billy. Mm-hmm. And just some of the names are great. Um, yeah. So much fun. I love this film. Are there any other observations you've made over the years have when you watched it how surprised were you by the reveal of
1: the killers maybe you should do that yeah. I was very surprised at the end I I wasn't expecting it to be two people for one thing yes um, that, that was but really it made sense once yep. you know they revealed it and I'm like that's how he was able to like do a phone call and he could you know one of them could be Attack. in the room yep. yeah like that all these things and um I was com- I was completely shocked. I was not expecting it. I think there was a part of me that thought Billy was suspicious because mm-hmm. um, he was he's he has this very like um, he's eerie yeah. sinister vibe. And his his like confrontation with Sydney at the top of the stairs in the hallway at school about where it's like, come on, it's been a year since your mom died. Like, shouldn't you be over this by now? That I know always yeah always like just rubs me the wrong way. It would, Just supposed to like. I mean, even Sydney's like, um,
0: no. Or the introduction to him coming through her window and yeah, something like I was watching. I can't remember what he was watching on TV. Like we were, we were an R-rated movie, and now yeah, and it was like a scary movie that he was Mm -hmm. watching, and all the good stuff was cut cut out. And I'm like, you know, only this guy would think that you know it wasn't like Fatal Attraction or um, Mm -hmm. body heat or something sexy or scary, but it was like a scary movie. I can't remember what it
1: was, but
0: yeah, that always kind of rubbed me the wrong way too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, his character, I think I, I, he's suspicious from the beginning and you always Mm -hmm. kind of wonder if it's him, but Stu literally like did not even cross my mind that he would be a part of it. So i know i was
0: thinking uh maybe the movie geek for a while Mm -hmm. i think we were supposed to be suspicious of i love gail weathers we should talk about um, corgi cox (laughs) who almost didn't get this because she was making friends at the time and what appealed to her is she was playing such a nice character she wanted to play the bitch and so she said that they almost didn't let her read for it because they're like well you're just such a you know she's seen as so good and wholesome She's like, I can really turn on a dime for you guys. And she did. And
1: yeah, yeah, she does a great job. Yeah. It's also, I know they ended up getting divorced, but I think it's so cute watching this and knowing that like her and David Arquette met on the side of the movie. And yeah, it's just cute. (laughs) And they still have such affection and respect for each other, which is nice.
0: You know, they'll do interviews and still talk about Gail and Dewey and they know what it means to the fans and also just their evolution, um, they're they had a kid or two I can't remember and yeah. so it's just
1: kind of like you know scream baby so yeah yeah. Nice. and they're I think they're both going to be in the next movie too yeah oh I'm excited so that's neat I, yeah. I was really excited for that when they released the trailer and mm-hmm. I love the incorporation of like modern technology where the person is trying to lock their house on an app and it keeps unlocking
0: did yes. you see that yeah. yes oh my gosh that gave me so chills <laughs> Yeah. Like, um, I remember in scream Two where they wanted to star 69, their ass or something was (laughs) like, so I like that they are trying to incorporate whatever is the thing at the time. They're not just pretending like none of this exists. And so Mm -hmm. yeah, it makes it more scary.
1: Yep. Yeah. And it's real smart too, because it makes it more relevant. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So good. I can't wait
0: for, um, I have the other ones as a box set. I think in the future, there's going to be a huge one. What Ooh. did you think of, you know, the the new movie being called Scream? I'm kind of mixed on that. Like, come on with the <laughs> Scream 5. Let's go.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a fan. I, no. I, I, I tweeted about this. Yes. <laughs> the, it it's bothers me. It should be Scream 5. It I really think if, should. Because as a big fan of the first four, when I saw that a movie was coming out named Scream, my first reaction was wait they're remaking scream yes you if you i know they already did it with halloween yeah there are three halloweens and three halloween twos
0: or something like that they were joking like come on you guys yeah so scream five that's what it should be i think we're going to call it scream five yeah yes everybody (laughs) uh i'm glad some of the people are returning i'm a little worried they're not going to have marco beltrami back who's such a good composer and his music in the Mm -hmm. other films really, I think made them what they are. I love the theme, but for Dewey, every time you would just know like he was okay at the end, when you heard that Western theme, do, 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 you know, you knew (laughs) he was fine. I love the Marco Beltrami score. So when I heard he wasn't coming back, I was a little worried, but it's been cool to see him um, kind of go on from this film. You know, he became an Oscar winning Oscar nominated composer and then he's mm-hmm. also in the genre like he did the scores for the most recent Fear Streets and worked with Wes Craven I think like seven times so really what, cool this will
1: this will be the first one I think Wes Craven directed all four right yeah, and this will right. be the first one that obviously he won't be that's able so to direct sad. so yeah yeah so that's interesting yeah. It's interesting even that they decided to continue it since it was envisioned a little like sort of as a trilogy. Yep. It was interesting that they continued to continue, continued mm-hmm. to continue.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they decided continue on. Yeah. 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 And yeah. I think four was so much stronger than three. So we're going to keep our fingers crossed that, yeah. you know, five. I like that, um, you know, it's people who probably grew up with Screams. So it has it's made by people with a lot of affection for it, which I think is yeah. very cool.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm excited about it. I'm. I am too. Looking forward to January. I mean, yes. it's still funny to me though that they choose. Like I would think you would release a movie like that in October, but. I know. You know yeah, it's knows. always
0: weird when they do that. Yeah, yeah like what? Even- yeah, one of my favorite um, scary movies. I will take any excuse to bring it up. Is called P two which is a, a scary movie that's set on Christmas and just like black Christmas basically, but P2 and it's like, they didn't release it in time for Halloween and they didn't release it in time for Christmas. And it's like, no wonder it bombed. Come on. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's what I like. I worry a little bit. I hope, I hope that there's enough nostalgia for mm-hmm. scream that um, that it'll do really well. But yeah. Like, you, you just, sometimes I just think the timing is weird when scary movies aren't, Um, released during like scary movie season when everyone's like really excited. Like the Scream Fathom events was like October, Mm -hmm. I want to say like 10th or something. So it was- for spooky season. Yeah, it was such a great timing because I was in the mood for scary movies. And, you know, it's like starting to get, the weather is kind of like spooky weather here. It's darker
0: (laughs) earlier. Yeah, Yeah. it's perfect for that. Well, hopefully in January, now that you're working at the theater, what we can kind of hope for is that you can walk around wearing your Woodsboro sweatshirt while people (laughs) are sitting there and then have, you know, the ghost face guy that you bonded with, bring him back. And you guys can be, the hell out of everyone in scream five. I like, yes, yes. (laughs) Sounds like a plan. Yeah. Well, thank you so much,
1: Kate. This was a ball. Thank you for having me. Of course.
0: Next up we have the man, the myth, the legend. It's my very good friend, Mr. Blake Howard. The remarkable, prolific, hardworking podcaster behind One Heat Minute Productions, who's released such stellar podcasts as Zodiac Chronicle, One Heat Minute, All the President's Minutes, and more. Blake, it is so great to have you here today. How are you doing? And what have you been working on?
2: Hey John, <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Um, look, I what am I doing? I'm I'm doing more than I've ever done before <laughs> yes. um, at the moment, is probably uh the best way to answer that question. Um I'm I've had a massive career change in my part of my life. So moving from sort of corporate world um, in some time in some part of that uh, into teaching, it's been extremely rewarding. Uh, but it's just really uh, sort of frantic, uh, ex- expedited course so that I can get into the classroom as fast as possible. So it's it's been really intense. And so apart from you know filing uh, an increasing a uh, clip of reviews towards the end of the year, apart from being a parent, apart from trying to produce a podcast, I mean, sort of podcast network and plan for mm-hmm. future series and wrap up Zodiac Chronicle um, <laughs> and do all those things. Um, I have just been, yeah, just really flat out and, and taking um, my, uh, what previous uh, conceptions of what busy and what and um, uh, what pressure is uh, to the next level. But um, I'm excited to talk to you about straight Time today
0: absolutely yeah anytime you think boy am i busy just think about our <laughs> our buddy blake over there who's molding young minds and teaching and then also putting out all of this great content writing producing podcasts um you're very inspiring great husband father my goodness yes
2: oh thank you jen that's so sweet uh but i have missed man have i missed my pandemic film club including great self and our, uh, cinephile game night virtually that happens. Yeah. Around. I, I, uh, our group chat is on fire. Um, and that fire yes. just uh, brings me so much joy I know <laughs> catching up on the group chat at, at, at all sorts of hours of the day. I'm, I'm so, I'm so happy. But no, like, uh, as far as creatively, cause I know that you're the people that listen to this show are, are incredibly supportive and, and I know that they kind of cross over. Yeah. Just like, um, the one thing that I would say is, and, and and I know our friend Jordan Harper has talked about it and written about it before, is like, um, I'm close to the end of Zodiac Chronicle, and I am uh, I am so hard on myself. I've I've edited and deleted the next episode about five times.
0: Um, oh my I'm goodness! i not yes. happy
2: with how it's turning out. So, uh, and and that's not to say that the content's not great. It's just I am I'm an extremely hard taskmaster with only six episodes of this series, or five or six episodes of the series to go that it is exactly how I envisage it. Um, and it lives up to the, to the expectation. So yeah, you're going to be hearing that episode soon. I'm finally going to bite the bullet and make that happen. And a couple of episodes are going to come out in quick clip. Cause I want this all out by Christmas, um, to focus on the development of podcaster and commander. Uh, but yeah, yeah it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an exciting time. And then we've got some fun stuff we're going to be playing around with next year together. So I, I want to make sure that the slate is clean. But yeah, it's been a really, um, it's been a really great time. And now like it feels, uh, I, I can say this, I, I think without jinxing myself, I'm going to touch wood on my desk. Um, but yeah, I feel like I'm, uh, I've been holding fast in uh, podcaster and commander parlance. I've been holding fast um, <laughs> on, uh, on those ropes and it feels like the waters are a little bit calmer uh, now that I'm talking to you again.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. I can't wait to hear the rest of Zodiac Chronicle. Check out Podcaster and Commander. And yeah, you alluded to it. Everybody who's listening, uh, Serrano's got the discs. Blake and I are going to be. Finally, we've made jokes about it. We are going to do something with Midnight Run next year. So be on the lookout for that. I'm very excited.
2: Mm. I'm very excited, too.
0: Yes. Everybody loves that movie. It seems like we were throwing out, you know, we did something. Boy, did so many people go I want to be on and I love yeah.
2: that yeah <laughs> yeah and and our, and all of all of our absolutely funnest friends were like literally the first people screaming to be on the show so it was like, yes. oh, this this is probably going to be more fun for Jen and I to sit back and listen to you mad people um, yes. absolutely go off and talk <laughs> about your love for this movie so that's exciting
0: very exciting well, today I was so excited to bring you on to chat about a film I know we both love and one newly released on Warner Archive Blu-ray in the States this fall. It's the 1978 neo-noir crime film Straight Time, based on the novel No Beast So Fierce by Edward Bunker. Centered on a lifelong thief in Los Angeles, struggling to find his way in regular society after serving a six-year prison sentence, Dustin Hoffman gives one of his best, most unsung turns in the film from director Ulu Grossbard and co-starring the terrific Teresa Russell, Kathy Bates, Harry Dean Stanton, Gary Busey, and M. Emmett Walsh, written for the screen by Edward Bunker, Alvin Sargent, and Jeffrey Bohm. The reason I especially wanted to have you on today is to talk about this stellar movie because the man you know the best from a film <laughs> research perspective... I think better than anyone writer director, Michael Mann did an uncredited rewrite on this film as well. His fingerprints, or at least his recurring themes, motifs, obsessions, and images seem to be everywhere in it in retrospect, but enough from me. I would love to hear your thoughts. So talk to me about straight time.
2: Yeah, it looks straight time. Um, I kind of wish straight time didn't have the title straight time. I, I, I love, yeah. I, I, I love the name. Let's just write it up front straight. No Be So Fierce was oh my such gosh. a seminal book and is such a great title. And for those folks who aren't aware, Straight Time was, uh, you know, uh, as Jen pointed out, she talked about The Gross Bar as the director. Um, and originally Straight Time was a Dustin Hoffman joint through yes. and through. He was a guy who had sourced the novel. It was going to be a direct, like a, you know, a sole directorial effort, him in the leading role, which is probably why when you're reading that absolutely ridiculous and insane cast, you're like, holy crap. Like, look at all these amazing people that are at this very specific time. Obviously, he's very eclectic taste and like just like catching people on the rise or catching people as they're solidifying themselves in the industry. So it's amazing. But Michael Mann and Dustin Hoffman are friends. And so, firstly, it was. Michael Mann coming on to help groom this script and get it into shape and thematically sort of achieve what the novel does with Dustin to mm-hmm. he was like giving him the best opportunity to be successful on his first directorial joint um and, and without having to write the script so that an amazing relationship i know i know that you know if you just look at it, look at the wiki it's like it's like oh you know Michael Mann may have done an uncredited rewrite no that's mm-hmm. not the case like he he was extremely interested in adapting this book to get yeah. no Be So Fierce um, uh, really on screen because Eddie Bunker's book, or Edward Bunker as we call, it, but I, I think I've called him Eddie Bunker about five hundred thousand times. Either, so I don't mean to be more casual with the man, but Sir Mister <laughs> Bunker. Um, but Eddie Bunker, um, who, if people you know don't know you, you definitely know him from Reservoir Dogs because he's one of um, the crew in the you know the high school and Reservoir Dogs, but. This book, No Be So Fierce, was such a seminal novel. It had such an impact on, you know, especially LA. You know, conceptions of LA crime uh, and and really institutionalization and its fingerprints and its influence are everywhere in Michael Mann's films because his his conception very much was looking at, you know, the the once you have gone down a certain path in crime, two things happen. One is, and that this is what I really want to focus on with you, Jen. One is that once you're in that system, quote unquote, it's almost impossible, just based on the conditions of the world, once you exit that system, to ever truly escape. True.
0: Gladiator Academy,
2: right in, yeah, right in heat there. Right in heat there. And then the second thing is, uh, once, what what people don't realize is, you know, and as you said, Gladiator Academy, but it's almost like Gladiator University because sometimes yes. that incentivization of like uh, back, you know, to pivot back to crime because the world is not ready to receive your
1: mm-hmm. um, your
2: penance, you know, your your institutional penance. It just you get sent back to you get sent back to jail, and then you get coached and guided and mentored on how to be a better criminal. So that when you yeah. leave. Don't ever go back again, and you can navigate the world of crime and and stay free,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and stay on the lamb long enough um, so that you don't go back to jail. And so, if people are hearing me say these things, you're like, um, and and if ever listened to a single Michael Mann podcast that I produced, particularly one he made it. It's like all those thematic resonances are they're not a mistake. They're they're, no. they're absolutely in heat. Um, they're all over the place, and in fact. Um, Eddie Bunker was originally going to be in Heat, cast as Nate, which is why John Voigt looks like that with that crazy mullet and that moustache, because if you see Eddie Bunker, oh,
0: that's he's a fascinating,
2: crazy long hair and a moustache, and yeah. he's a fixer. And uh, Michael Mann uh, said, you know, a very sweet thing to John Voigt, who has now gone off the reservation, but he said a very sweet thing to, to him at the time, which was, um, you know, Michael, why are you getting me to do this? Why don't you just get the guy? You know Eddie Bunker, like he's right there. He doesn't have to wear a dumb wig or um, have to get these pockmarks on his face, and he doesn't have to get some moustache. And uh, Michael Mann's like, no, because I want us to work together. Otherwise, we don't get a chance to work together. So this this movie has all that in spades in the background. And so why it probably flew under the radar, uh, especially at the time, is is internal studio turmoil because as
0: Dustin was.
2: Yeah. yeah, as Dustin was getting ready to produce this film, getting out there and having some time at the beginning of the film trying to get it going, get it moving, there was studio conflict about the amount of time it was taking for him to execute on this vision. And as it's the story as old as time, Hollywood studio interferes, he gets bounced out of the director's chair and they're like, right, mm-hmm. oh, let's just shoot the script. And he's a professional actor, so he does it thinking, you know, all of the preparation, all of the script – work all of the you know the casting you know he was at the helm of all of that and then he yeah. just you know the sort of the day-to-day um it's almost like a second unit director taking the reins of the film essentially like he just gets bounced out of the director's chair so i think also a large part why this movie doesn't get the credit and doesn't you know uh, isn't as ubiquitous as it probably should be is because the studio at the time was like mm, no we're not going to back you so <laughs> that's yeah.
0: a problem. No, I agree with you. Yeah. And I just learned I was watching some of the TCM introductions over the years, which always have the best tidbits Mm. that Bunker started writing it and got the book published in San Quentin. I love that. By the time he got out, this book was already like a sensation and Hoffman had already optioned it. You mentioned um, that, yeah, Hoffman did get bounced. He was trying to direct, write and produce. And he kind of also thought it was too much according to Robert Osborne on TCM. And so he was like willing to step down a little bit, but he still had that final cut in place, um, which he was going to have as director. And so I think a big part of the fight after was Dustin wanted to have final cut and then the studio did. Th- it was like a whole it was kind of like Ishtar before Ishtar. I mean, not to that level, but that's the press that was coming out at the time um interestingly i didn't realize that he had worked with ulu grossbard before on who is harry kellerman and why is he saying those terrible things about me in 71 (laughs) so he did kind of like pick somebody whose sensibility sort of matched his own which i thought was really smart um but it is very much you watch this movie and you can see michael mann all over it and i shared that on Twitter because even the AFI credits him as, you know, having a hand in the script. Like he didn't make the credits, but he's there. And hilariously, as Blake understands some of my reply guys, (laughs) someone replied to me and pretended to be one of the credited screenwriters. I mean, first of all, they're all dead. Like they're, they're all, they've all passed on, you know, rest in peace. He pretended to be one of them. And he's like, Michael Mann didn't do a thing. And blah blah blah. And so I cited where I got the information from and like um oh, you know, and then he this is uh, where
2: you direct message me and I abuse someone online. Ap- I'm like, Oh, I'm sorry, it's a miracle, you're back from the dead. Shut the F up. I mean, yes. these reply guys.
0: Oh no, but it was hilarious because when I kind of like it was a gotcha moment, he <laughs> deleted all of his tweets about it because I think he figured out, wait. And then he blocked me and it was just some <laughs> random guy. We're going to call him Roger. Cause that's what he went by um, that Roger. Yeah. So he's not Alvin Sargent or who these people are. I don't know who he was, but what I loved is I shared my thoughts on this movie and how much I loved it. And Hey, Michael Mann fans should check it out. And Matt Soler's night shared and um, Walter Chaw and Janet Maslin and people way bigger than me, but he was like, nope, I'm going to pick on this one person because if <laughs> I go after Matt Zollerzai, it's like everyone will know. And I thought that was very, very yeah, with, funny. With Matt's yeah. great
2: power, with Matt's great reach and power. Uh, comes, <laughs> uh,
0: Roger would have been toast. Yes.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah. poor, poor Roger. The <laughs> would have been lit up. Um, yes. Yeah, look, it's a reply guys sorry I'm going to digress to reply guys I don't want to do that but no <laughs> one thing that uh, I really wanted to talk to you about about this film because you know the the back end of the film is is more of what the book truly is as in the sensation of you know being on the lamb, the systems yeah. that you um, used to survive the the codes. I mean, I know it's you know this is deeply, Michael. Man, shit. Even me saying it. Um, I've sort of got a smile on my face right now just saying <laughs>
1: it, but it's
2: like well, all of the codification of these processes and the systems and this like ecosystem that you create to live, kind of off the grid or a way to set up heists to get yeah you know, equipment. All those things. It's such a process driven, and it's just such an intoxicating, you know, uh, thing for people. Like I know you and I, when we watch mm-hmm. it, like just how the how the whole picture of the world is painted, um, it's just so so wonderful. But the one true thing, you know, and again, me bouncing back to one of my favorite parts of Heat in a different way is um, the the Donald Breeden character in Heat. Uh,
0: oh my goodness! Yeah, Dennis Haysbert's character has one of the most heartbreaking. Of- yep.
2: A heartbreaking vignette in the movie originally when it was seen in 95 it was thought of a, a bit of an excess, a bit of an unnecessary excess, if you like <laughs> but that, but that picture of, so the African-American male experience, um, of institutionalization and then just the, the awful reality of the exploitation.
0: Yeah. You try and get back. Yeah. yeah. Just
2: used and abuse and, and, how, how, how can you stay? And the, the great questions asking truly of like, how can you stay on the straight and narrow in this context? All of that is just so powerful. And mm-hmm. the first really like half an hour of like establishment of this movie, um, is, is that and I it is. can't get enough of that because not only is it wonderful 1978, you know, uh, like a, a kind of side of LA being shot yeah. like that is just amazing to look at because LA is so drastically different um, now, mm-hmm. but looks so wonderful then. Um, it, it just, that's the true, true, true like epic heartbreak that kind of bookends and then foreshadows the, the climactic moments of the movie is there is almost nothing. There's almost no chance that you're going to get through without Bouncing back, like, and Mm -hmm. the whole system is geared to that. And I just think when you watch Hoffman's character, whose name in this film is Max Dembo, when you watch Max like go through that and start to it really starts to crystallize that this is going to be his life. Yeah. I'm just I'm just completely blown away by that. I I that's I I could almost like that. It's just a great, it's just a great character development. It's just so I don't know how to describe it on that. I just I, I I really can't get enough of the pace and the slowness but also then the feeling that almost uh, uh, colors the way that you watch the movie for the rest of the time because it's sort of it, it is it has established a way to view this world. and so then he's immediately despite doing bad things, is an immediately more relatable and 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 uh, and sympathetic character for the rest of the movie.
0: Yeah, that first half hour is slow and they need it because basically, you're under the thumb of authority. Um, you know, it's a hurry up and wait situation. Like yeah. he is manipulated and just targeted and bullied by his horrible parole um, officer. And uh, oh, my God, how slithering is M Emmett Walsh in this movie? <laughs> like, my M. M. goodness.
2: Emmett M. Walsh is like, you know, that stupid meme, like understands the assignment like Emmett Walsh, Emmett yes. <laughs> yeah. Walsh note. Invented so the assignment. Yeah, it's like a, <laughs> it's like He did. He totally did because it's like everything he's in, he's just completely perfect. The mm-hmm. eye, like whether it's sincere, like it's something about the twinkle in his eye that he's always got one up on you. Yeah. Yeah. It's gleeful, beautiful. But yeah, no, he's, he's such a, He's such an enjoyable prick. Like there's just kind of no other way to put it. He's just so
0: enjoyable. Yeah. He's kind of that stereotype of like the cop who got, you know, picked on as a kid and then just Mm. wanted to just beat the shit or pick on people. It's a big, you know, cliche here, but that is in a sense what M.M. Walsh is. It's like he wants to have something over and be able to control people and he gets off on it. And it's just, oh, it's unbearably creepy and you just get so angry. And so I love that while he's trying to get back into straight life, essentially, it is slow because he is still, in a sense, like on the inside, he's kind of imprisoned and he has to just wait. And then when he takes everything into his own hands, when he crosses that bridge and he's like, nope. I'm going to be a criminal and that's just what I am. Uh, The pace gets very frenetic as it goes on. And I love that switch up. Um, Also like you, you can't imagine seeing thief without this film. Like you can see where, yeah, Michael Mann got some of these ideas, like the scene with Tuesday. Weld that you and I have talked about several times (laughs) uh, with his picture from jail as he was like putting this collage together Um, you can just see that in Max Dembo's relationship with the Jenny character who's beautifully played by Teresa Russell. Um, yeah, it just, these two would be a terrific double feature. And then of course you need heat. I mean, you always need to watch heat. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Look, if there's any, if if there's anyone who knows me, like it's not hard for me to pair a movie with heat, Um, any movie really uh, in the world, but, um, (laughs) but yeah look uh, that's the thing that just gets me every time is is yeah it's it's those processes and those systems and so you know with thief the the ingredients of what the world has to look like for a working thief are so perfectly articulated in no be so fierce and if you guys have got an extra couple of bucks um you know post holiday or you know uh, or or as part of like sale season i'm not sure how it's working um Strongly recommend getting your hands on the paperback of No Beast So if you can find it. If you can't, it's on Kindle um, because, okay. you know, if, you, if, you, if you're impatient and you don't want to wait for the physical mail to arrive and you have, like, a reader, um, you can really get it. And it's just, like, it's the way that this world works is it's almost like, really, it's like starting a job for the first time um, in some big corporation and it has all these processes and systems and it's as complex and as sophisticated in the way that it happens and except the ecosystem is like prison centric, like the prison comes out with the procedures of the way that you live your life. And if there's one thing I do like about the title, like, you know, there's a Michael Mann line that happens in a bunch of his movies, um, most famously and poorly accented, uh, by Chris Hemsworth, you know, in black hat, which is, you know, I do the, I don't do the time that like, um, uh, like, uh, sorry, I don't let the time do me. Like I do the time. I don't let the time. Oh do me. yeah. And, so straight time is like, literally it is about him having to put up with this facade and this like sort of epic tragedy of like rehabilitation is a lie. Yeah. And I think that's the bigger theme of the book, which is why it's a sensation. It's not only this procedural thing, but just the like profound philosophical impact of, Hey, like prisons don't rehabilitate people necessarily, unless there's like a cycle of you go away, you are rehabilitated you have your penance and then you come back out into society to be a citizen. Yep. But it just sort of really captures, I think maybe Western society, but most specifically American society's view of like, Mm -hmm. there's no true rehabilitation. So like our justice system is ultimately unjust and is flawed. And so that flaw then echoes through everything. It's like when they come out, they're not truly rehabilitated. They are just going to bounce back to crime. And like, it's like a, It's like a manifest destiny. I think that is in the book, which is underpinned by all this great stuff. You know, it's like, of course, it's got cool shit. Like, if your getaway driver like betrays you, you kill him. You know?
0: Yeah. (laughs) um, Yeah, There's a code with the criminals, and yeah, (laughs) and you know, you have to listen to your second man there when he tells you it's time to leave the jewelry store. Leave the fucking jewelry store, basically. (laughs) Basically, yeah. Get out
2: of there. Like, so there's all that stuff, but that I, I think that that's why people have continued to revisit it and i think why even no be so fierce international bestseller that it is has had such a huge impact is that it like it it pulls away uh any of this i don't know like i don't know whether it's like hope or
0: (laughs) whether it's optimism, optimism like fantasy that when you go to jail it just and then you come out you're just magically accepted and not yeah, the way like, our hey, criminal justice system is set up in this no, country.
2: No. no. You did the time. Uh, but even in Australia to you know, to an extent as well. It's yeah. like you've been to jail and so many jobs
0: are not require for you. Anymore. Prim-
2: yeah, require a criminal check. Mm-hmm. You're just not eligible to go to a normal job after that. You know, and so the, I think if if we're talking about like the true sense of what we re- you know prison as
0: this thing. Yeah, uh, you can't even to- vote in this yeah, country
2: yeah yeah and america you can't vote and but yeah it's though all those things that are there to be against you
0: mm-hmm. they
2: feel like the smaller part but it's just like i think then once you get caught everything is incentivized um uh, beyond yeah. that and obviously like three strikes and out um comes comes much later um but you know you you definitely see all of that and i think it you know when a movie like strikes it and maybe it's not on the nose, and it's not so overt that that is the theme of the movie, rather that it's the ecosystem of the movie. That's what I'm continued to be struck by. So, like, even just the whole part where Max meets, um, oh my God, a, an impossibly young Gary Busey uh, as Willie <laughs> Um like yeah. when you, when, when you so see good. that, when you see that relationship, like he just wants to crave some kind of fellowship because he's so alienated in the world, and so then yeah. you just see them getting together and like. Like even it's sorry to say, like typecast Gary Busey, but the first moment you see him, like, oh, he's going back. Like Max is going, like,
0: yep, back this blend. relationship mm-hmm.
2: is 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 gonna be part of a, a potential eventual downfall. Yeah, um, but as you're watching it happen, you're just like, yeah, of course he wants fellowship. Of course he wants a friend. Mm-hmm. Of course he wants to shoot the shit and like bend the rules of um, his parole because it's. I mean, this yeah. life sucks.
0: Yeah, he's lonely. It's such a a great moment of foreshadowing and also heartbreaking when he does go over to Gary Busey's and Kathy Bates kind of just privately Mm -hmm. tells him, like he she doesn't want him around because then he's going to get back into crime and you shouldn't either. And it's like she's basically telling him this is going to end well, and of course it is. But also, it reminded me of that scene in Heat. Um, At the beginning, of course, you know, rock and roll, drop of the hat, you know, all those great (laughs) lines. But, you know, like this guy did not hesitate. Like he knew if he killed one, might as well just take them all out. And Mm -hmm. you see that escalation as the hope kind of goes away out of his eyes, like his eyes actually become harder. Blessing Hoffman's incredible. Like it, it starts with robbery and then it gets worse. And then, yeah, he pulls the trigger and you're like, wow. So he's just going to keep going, and what a amazing way to end the movie! Um, to see these old mugshots of him over the years, it's just perfection. Yeah,
2: yeah, it, it's such a great touch, and it's actually you know, and I don't know if anyone has like talked about this before, but it, because I've just seen it so so damn recently, mm-hmm. um, I think David Lary might like this movie. Um, and I think why I think he might like this movie is because the old man and the gun uh with robert redford one of his last great terrific performances if you've never seen the old man and the gun uh i would definitely recommend it's much more of it's got some of the same sort of thematic preoccupations that this movie has about you know the impossibility of escaping from a life of crime once you start doing it but it's much more fun um yeah. and i feel like the 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 kind of like robert redford watching all the ways that um his lead character in that movie gets like Captured and taken to prison is kind of like the coda of the movie. Um, feels like like the happy version of um, Straight, Time, Straight Time because yeah. Straight Time, Straight Time is depressing, but uh, that one's like the happy way of approaching it. And yeah, it's a it's a really fascinating thing that like you know again the whole Redford and Hoffman thing for my Blake, universe, their movies talking brilliant. to each other.
0: <laughs> you are brilliant because one of the videos that I watched before this was David Lowry and uh, Robert Redford kind of doing a TCM discussion with uh, in this case, it was Ben Menkowitz about this movie. Like they sort of introduced it. They mainly talked about their movie. And then at the end talked about, um, you know, with a little bit of thoughts on straight time, but mostly talking about old man and the gun and Redford made this comment. Like when he goes to jail, my guy's happy about it. And yes. <laughs> that's it. Like he's okay with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: I mean, look, it's, he, he knew he was going to get out again. Um, yes. Yeah. Sorry. I, have not seen that. That was not planned. Um, uh, no,
0: Blake is that it. good. And he did an incredible podcast on all the presidents, men. Yep.
2: Oh God. That's so funny. Um, yes. But yeah, so that, that's just one, you know, one of those like uh, beautiful similarities and echoes that you yeah. see. Um, but, but yeah, in this, it's so heartbreaking. It's, so heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh it's, yeah, it's, it's that, that's what gets me in this movie now. Like I think, especially if you're an impatient movie watcher and not necessarily if you're an impatient movie watcher overall, but if you're just not in the vibe, the beginning of this movie sometimes is one of those things I feel like that people might, if, you know, if you've got an Apple TV remote are like, all right, I want to, I want to speed this up. I'm going to hit that 10 second ahead, like 25 times and just, you know, get, get, you know, get ahead of this, but they don't deserve
0: movies. (laughs) uh,
2: And, but I'm just like the beginning of the second half is the stuff that, only resonates for me because of the beginning so i'm just always like you know the the other stuff we've seen and we've seen versions of it we've seen this familiarity we've seen what happens when you just like decide to commit yourself to a life of crime and and you know Mm -hmm. straight time is burdened by its influence more than anything like we've seen movies like this and you know influence on um and no be so fierce directly influencing michael Mann's work so heavily um but it's uh, yeah i think the beginning of this that la you know getting out to prison, walking around to try and get all these jobs, like the, the grueling, like walk here, walk there. I can't catch a bus, or maybe I haven't got enough money for the bus, all those things, just those little details. Um, they're, they're my favorite part of the movie truly because of then that foreshadowing builds so strong as far as character building for Mm -hmm. for everything happens later.
0: Yeah. You absolutely need that. It's like setting up the dominoes. Yeah. This was wonderful, Blake. I want to thank you so much. Are there any other thoughts on straight time you want to, Discuss before no, just we just
2: get it physical just media. get
0: it everyone yeah just get it <laughs> trust media, us. I'm,
2: such, I'm such an immense fan of physical media because of the unpredictability and unreliability of different corporate interests um yeah, this services. was not
0: available on streaming for the longest time
2: yeah uh yeah it's a, like i i our, our bene- a benevolent corporate a benevolent corporate interests who have uh control mm-hmm. of what we consume um i don't trust them um
0: no not uh, at all or
2: like or what's that line from the italian job like the one good thing in the new italian job like i i don't um i don't or sorry no i trust them but i don't trust the devil inside them and that's <laughs> basically uh why i'm like get physical media get your yep. hands on it um because you will acquire things that just are simply not available not anywhere available. else and 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 you know um speaking also from a practical standpoint as a dad my physical media collection comes in handy if the internet goes down
0: or something yes. like that
2: with two small children, because then I can just jump to the shelves, grab the physical media of all of their little movies that they like, and I could chuck mm-hmm. something on because uh, it's there. But yeah, it's uh, no straight time a must acquisition. Personally, going to make sure that I have it because I only have like an old, 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 old um, copy of it. Um, so yeah, you must, you must get your hands on it
0: yeah absolutely and i just sent my old dvd off to our other pandemic movie club buddy jed so this is great yeah so trust all of our tests our tastes here yeah
2: (laughs) yeah you can definitively say that uh, our our whole crew um wholeheartedly endorse this and i feel like um you know our our great author friend jordan harper and great friend of this show uh watch with jan i think jordan like jordan approaches the uh the sort of like fatalistic view of crime and society Mm -hmm. so beautifully in his work that i feel like he's a bunker guy too jordan's a
0: yeah i don't even think he's seen the film like i sent him a copy of it once but but absolutely bunker you can see the fingerprints everywhere yeah yeah
2: because he because you know jordan is no uh Is no fool for the the hypocrisy of society, (laughs) especially of our. That's why
0: we love him. Yeah,
2: we love him so much. But uh, yeah, like that, I I see that, and I go, you know what? That's that's a person who knows that people end up just yeah they they the the choices that they're made to get them in there. Once they're in, you're in the system.
0: You're in the system. You're in the game, essentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Blake, this was great. I want to thank you so much.
2: Thank you for having me as always. I love this
0: show. (laughs) I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show.